Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And I have a true heroes story for you today, and a very fitting one for Women's History Month. I'll begin with this question for you female listeners. Would you, as a 23-year-old young woman, desperate for work, fake insanity to gain access to a very dangerous and very badly managed lunatic asylum in order to secure a job with a city newspaper? You will have no contacts on the inside and no way of calling for help should you be in a situation which requires securing your safety. And in the times in which this story takes place, cell phones and modern means of communication were non-existent. I'm wondering how many of you would answer yes. Well, one young woman took that offer. Her real name was Elizabeth Cochran, but in just a few months, the world would soon know her as Nellie Bly. She would become the best-known investigative journalist in America, male or female. All the hard-working female investigative journalists out there today, uncovering scandals, covering war zones, and reporting from very dangerous places around the world on human suffering and abuse, owe their start, at least in a small way, to Miss Cochran. And this is her incredible story. In 1877, after months of rejection from editors who refused to consider hiring a woman, aspiring journalist Elizabeth Cochran secured a meeting with the New York World's managing editor. Determined to make the most of her chance, she offered to travel to Europe and return steerage class to report firsthand on the experiences of the immigrants coming to the United States in record numbers. The editor rejected the idea as too far-flung for an inexperienced reporter but asked instead if she would feign insanity and have herself committed to the infamous insane asylum on Blackwell's Island, home to most of the city's prisons, charity hospitals, and workhouses. The assignment was more local, but scarcely less risky. In contrast to better-funded institutions patronized by the middle and upper classes, the conditions at the Blackwell's Island Asylum were notoriously poor. It provided cheap custodial care for impoverished, mentally ill immigrants. Nevertheless, she eagerly accepted the assignment. It turned out to be a brilliant and life-changing move. Her madhouse performance inaugurated the performative tactic that would become her trademark reporting style. Nellie Bly imitators began popping up in every city, while the name Nellie Bly became a synonym for female star reporter. With little formal education, no professional training as a journalist, and no credentials in any specialized field. Elizabeth Cochran slash Nellie Bly lacked virtually all of the commonly accepted qualifications for professional status in late 19th century America. Yet, she transformed her amateurism from liability to asset, countering bureaucratic and scientific authority with her own truths based on physical sensation. In an era that embraced scientific experts, Bly's honest girl reportage exulted in the concrete specifics of one individual's experience which scorned scientific observation. By adopting the hysterics hyper-female, hyper-expressive body, she created her own story and claimed the right to tell it in her own way. Moreover, impersonating insanity allowed her to flaunt the very characteristics that were being used to bar women from city newsrooms. Her femaleness, her emotional expressiveness, her physical, even her explicitly sexual, vulnerability. The first article in her Ten Days in a Madhouse series 
attracted so much attention that Bly's name appeared not just as a byline, but in the headline of the next installment. And all that was only her first shot. Her incredible story, which should serve as a lesson in audacity and courage, follows here as we share portions of her account. After her first article hit, the owner of Pulitzer's New York World rocketed to newspaper history. Nellie Bly's name would headline every successive article, and the male-dominated newspaper world would never be the same again. We'll return with her story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Nellie Bly was born Elizabeth Jane Cochran on May 5, 1864, in Cochran's Mills, now part of Burrell Township, Armstrong County, Pennsylvania, just north and east of Pittsburgh. Her father, Michael Cochran, born about 1810, started out as a laborer and mill worker before buying the local mill and most of the land surrounding his family farmhouse. He later became a merchant, postmaster, and associate justice at Cochran's Mills, which was named after him. Michael married twice. He had ten children with his first wife, Catherine Murphy, and five more children, including Elizabeth Cochran, his thirteenth daughter, with his second wife, Mary Jane Kennedy. Fifteen kids in all, thirteen of them daughters. Quite a feat. Michael Cochran died in 1870 when Elizabeth was six. As a young girl, Elizabeth often was called Pinky because she so frequently wore that color. As she became a teenager, she wanted to portray herself as more sophisticated, and she dropped the Pinky nickname and changed her surname to Cochrane, adding an E to Cochrane. In 1879, she enrolled at Indiana Normal School, now Indiana University of Pennsylvania, for one term, but was forced to drop out due to lack of funds. In 1885, a column in the Pittsburgh Dispatch titled, What Girls Are Good For?, stated that girls were principally for birthing children and keeping house, which should give you a good idea of where women stood in society in those times. This prompted Elizabeth to write a response under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. The editor, George Madden, was impressed with her passion and ran an advertisement asking the author to identify herself. When Cochrane introduced herself to the editor, he offered her the opportunity to write a piece for the newspaper, again under the pseudonym Lonely Orphan Girl. Her first article for the dispatch, titled The Girl Puzzle, argued that not all women would marry and that what was needed were better jobs for women. The article was well received, and she was asked to write more. Her second article, Mad Marriages, was about how divorce affected women. In it, she argued for reform of divorce laws. Mad Marriages was published under the byline of Nellie Bly, rather than Lonely Orphan Girl. It was customary for women who were newspaper writers at that time to use pen names. The editor chose Nellie Bly after the African-American title character in the popular song Nellie Bly by Stephen Foster. Cochrane originally intended that her pseudonym be Nellie Bly, but her editor wrote Nellie by mistake. And the errors stuck. Madden was impressed again and offered her a full-time job. Here's a short excerpt from Stephen Foster's song, Nellie Bly, to put you back in the 19th century and give you an idea as to why Elizabeth chose that name. Nellie Bly, Nellie 
my dear, and have a little song. Poke the wood, my lady love, and make the fire burn. And while I take the banjo down, just give the mush a turn. Hey, Nelly, ho, Nelly, listen, love to me. I'll sing for you, play for you, a dulcet melody. Hey, Nelly, ho, Nelly, listen, love to me. I'll sing for you, play for you, a dulcet melody. Like the turtle dove, I hears it in the meadow and I hears it in the grove. Nellie Bly have a heart warm as cup of tea and bigger than the sweet potato down in Tennessee. Hey Nellie, ho Nellie, listen, love to me. I'll sing for you, play for you a dulcet melody. Hey Nellie, ho Nellie, listen. I'll sing for you, play for you, a dulcet melody. As a writer, Elizabeth, pen name Nellie Bly, focused her early work for the Pittsburgh Dispatch on the lives of working women, writing a series of investigative articles on women factory workers. However, the newspaper soon received complaints from factory owners, no surprise, about her writing, and she was reassigned to women's pages to cover fashion, society, and gardening, the usual role for women journalists, and she became dissatisfied. Still only 21, she was determined to do something no girl had ever done before. She then traveled to Mexico to serve as a foreign correspondent, spending nearly half a year reporting on the lives and customs of the Mexican people. Her dispatches later were published in book form as Six Months in Mexico. In one report, she protested the imprisonment of a local journalist for criticizing the Mexican government, then a dictatorship under Porfirio Diaz. When Mexican authorities learned of Bly's report, they threatened her with arrest, prompting her to flee the country. Safely home, she accused Diaz of being a tyrannical czar, suppressing the Mexican people and controlling the press. Burdened again with theater and arts reporting, Elizabeth left the Pittsburgh Dispatch in 1887 for New York City. She faced rejection after rejection in Gotham City as news editors would not consider hiring a woman. Penniless, after four months, she talked her way into the offices of Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World, and took an undercover assignment for which she agreed to feign insanity to investigate reports of brutality and neglect at the Women's Lunatic Asylum on Blackwell's Island, now named Roosevelt Island. It was not easy for Bly to be admitted to the asylum. She first decided to check herself into a boarding house called Temporary Homes for Females. She stayed up all night to give herself the wide-eyed look of a disturbed woman and began making accusations that the other boarders were insane. Bly told the assistant matron, "'There are so many crazy people about.' and one can never tell what they'll do. She refused to go to bed, and eventually scared so many of the other boarders that the police were called to take her to the nearby courthouse. Once examined by a police officer, a judge, and a doctor, Bly was taken to Blackwell's Island. 
Blackwell's Island, located in New York's East River, had been purchased from the Blackwell family by the city in order to build a jail and an asylum. Dr. John McDonald, a physician involved with the design of the new asylum, wrote, The indiscriminate mingling of the mild and furious, clean and filthy, convalescent and idiotic, need only to be witnessed to be deprecated. He continued, Classification is now justly considered by almost all persons of experience of the first importance in the treatment of insanity. He suggested that patients be divided into four specific classes, the noisy, destructive, and violent, the idiots, the convalescents, and an intermediate class for those in the first stages of convalescence and such incurables who are harmless and not possessed of bad habits. He submitted plans for a modern asylum with open access to the outside and free of iron bars, but his model asylum was never built. Due to financial constraints, only two wings were ever completed, and almost from the start it was overcrowded. To make things worse, convicts from the nearby penitentiary were used as guards and attendants, so that, in the words of Dr. Thomas Kirkbride, the patients were abandoned to the tender mercies of thieves and prostitutes, meaning pimps. Female inmates were regularly assaulted. Beatings were commonplace. Inmates were treated like lab rats. It was this hellhole into which Elizabeth Cochrane, alias Nellie Bly, was admitted. We offer her picture at our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes and at Twitter at 1001podcast. Her first five chapters take us through the process of actually making it to the asylum. She had no confidants on the inside or on the way through the process that got her admitted. She writes, As the wagon was rapidly driven through the beautiful lawns up to the asylum, my feelings of satisfaction at having attained the object of my work were greatly dampened by the look of distress on the faces of my companions. Poor women! They had no hopes of a speedy delivery. They were being driven to a prison, through no fault of their own, in all probability, for life. In comparison, how much easier it would be to walk to the gallows than to this tomb of living horrors. On the wagon sped, and I, as well as my comrades, gave a despairing farewell glance at freedom as we came in sight of the long stone buildings. We passed one low building, and the stench was so horrible that I was compelled to hold my breath, and I mentally decided that it must be the kitchen. I afterward found I was correct in my surmise, and smiled at the signboard at the end of the walk. Visitors are not allowed on this road. I don't think the sign would be necessary if they once tried the road, especially on a warm day. The wagon stopped, and the nurse and officer in charge told us to get out. The nurse added, Thank God they came quietly. We obeyed orders to go ahead up a flight of narrow stone steps, which had evidently been built for the accommodation of people who climbed stairs three at a time. I wondered if my companions knew where we were, so I said to Miss Tilly Mayard, Where are we? At the Blackwell's Island Lunatic Asylum, she answered, sadly. Are you crazy? I asked. No, she replied. But as we have been sent here, we will have to be quiet until we find some means of escape. They will be few, though, if all the doctors, as Dr. Field, refuse to listen to me or give me a chance to prove my sanity. We were ushered into a narrow vestibule, and the door was locked behind us. 
In spite of the knowledge of my sanity and the assurance that I would be released in a few days, my heart gave a sharp twinge. Pronounced insane by four expert doctors and shut up behind the unmerciful bolts and bars of a madhouse, not to be confined alone, but to be a companion, day and night, of senseless, chattering lunatics. To sleep with them, to eat with them, to be considered one of them, was an uncomfortable position. Timidly, we followed the nurse up the long, uncarpeted hall to a room filled by so-called crazy women. We were told to sit down, and some of the patients kindly made room for us. They looked at us curiously, and one came up to me and asked, "'Who sends you here?' "'The doctors,' I answered. "'What for?' she persisted. "'Well, they say I'm insane,' I admitted. "'Insane?' she repeated, incredulously. "'It cannot be seen in your face.' This woman was too clever, I concluded, and was glad to answer the roughly given orders to follow the nurse to see the doctor. This nurse, Miss Group, by the way, had a nice German face, and if I had not detected certain hard lines about the mouth, I might have expected, as did my companions, to receive but kindness from her. She left us in a small waiting room at the end of the hall, and left us alone while she went into a small office opening into the sitting or receiving room. "'I'd like to go down in the wagon,' she said to the invisible party on the inside. "'It helps to break up the day.' He answered her that the open air improved her looks, and she again appeared before us, all smiles and simpers. THE INSANE ASYLUM "'Come here, Jilly Mayard,' she said. Miss Mayard obeyed, and though I could not see her into the office, I could hear her gently but firmly pleading her case. All her remarks were as rational as any I ever heard, and I thought no good physician could help but be impressed with her story. She told of her recent illness, that she was suffering from nervous debility. She begged that they try all their tests for insanity, if they had any, and give her justice. Poor girl! How my heart ached for her! I determined then and there that I would try by every means to make my mission of benefit to my suffering sisters, that I would show how they are committed without ample trial. Without one word of sympathy or encouragement, she was brought back to where we sat. Miss Louise Chance was taken into the presence of Dr. Kinnear, the medical man. "'Your name?' he asked loudly. She answered in German, saying she did not speak English, nor could she understand it. However, when he said, Mrs. Louise Chance, she said, Ya, ya. Then he tried other questions, and when he found she could not understand one word of English, he said to Miss Group, You're German. Speak to her for me. Miss Group proved to be one of those people who are ashamed of their nationality, and she refused, saying she could understand but few words of her mother tongue. "'You know you speak German. "'Ask this woman what her husband does.' "'And they both laughed as if they were enjoying a joke. "'I can't speak but a few words,' she protested. "'But at last she managed to ascertain the occupation of Mr. Chance. "'Now what was the use of lying to me?' asked the doctor, "'with a laugh which dispelled the rudeness. "'I can't speak any more,' she said. "'And she didn't.' Thus was Mrs. Louise Chance consigned to the asylum without a chance of making herself understood. Can such carelessness be excused, I wonder, when it is so easy to get an interpreter? If the confinement was but for a few days, one might question the necessity. 
but here was a woman taken without her own consent from a free world to an asylum, and there given no chance to prove her sanity. Confined most probably for life behind asylum bars, without even being told in her language the why and wherefore. Compare this with a criminal who has given every chance to prove his innocence. Who would not rather be a murderer and take the chance for life than be declared insane without any hope of escape? Mrs. Shantz begged in German to know where she was and pleaded for liberty, her voice broken by sobs. She was led unheard out to us. After a few songs, we were told to go with Miss Group. We were taken into a cold, wet bathroom, and I was ordered to undress. Did I protest? Well, I never grew so earnest in my life as when I tried to beg off. They said if I did not, they would use force and that it would not be very gentle. At this, I noticed one of the craziest women in the ward standing by the filled bathtub with a large, discolored rag in her hands. She was chattering away to herself and chuckling in a manner which seemed to me fiendish. I knew now what was to be done with me. I shivered. They began to undress me, and one by one they pulled off my clothes. At last everything was gone excepting one garment. I will not remove it, I said vehemently. But they took it off. I gave one glance at the group of patients gathered at the door watching the scene, and I jumped into the bathtub with more energy than grace. Just as an aside... I have a hunch that Elizabeth Cochran was toughened up considerably during her long term as a journalist in Mexico under the Porfirio Diaz regime, because this kind of treatment would have most women jumping into the East River. Next excerpt, the reception room. The water was ice cold, and I, be and I again began to protest. How useless it all was. I begged at least that the patients be made to go away, but was ordered to shut up. The crazy woman began to scrub me. I can find no other word that will express it but scrubbing. From a small tin pan she took some soft soap and rubbed it all over me, even over all my face and my pretty hair. I was at last past seeing or speaking, although I had begged that my hair be left untouched. Rub, 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 went the old woman, chattering to herself. My teeth chattered and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue with cold. Suddenly I got, one after the other, three buckets of water over my head. "'ice-cold water, too, into my eyes, my ears, my nose, and my mouth. "'I think I experienced some of the sensations of a drowning person "'as they dragged me, gasping, shivering, and quaking from the tub. "'For once I did look insane. "'I caught a glance of the indescribable look on the faces of my companions "'who had witnessed my fate, and knew theirs was surely following. "'Unable to control myself with the absurd picture I presented,' I burst into roars of laughter. They put me, dripping wet, into a short canton flannel slip, labeled across the extreme end in large black letters. Lunatic Asylum, B-I-H-6. The letters meant Blackwell's Island, Hall 6. By this time Miss Mayard had been undressed, and as much as I hated my recent bath, I would have taken another if by it I could have saved her the experience. Imagine plunging that already sick girl into a cold bath when it made me, who has never been ill, shake as if with egg. I heard her explain to Miss Group that her head was still sore from her illness. Her hair was short and had mostly come out, and she asked that the crazy woman be made to rub more gently. But Miss Group said, 
"'There isn't much fear of hurting you. "'Shut up, or you'll get it worse.' "'Miss Mayer did shut up, "'and that was my last look at her for the night. "'I was hurried into a room where there were six beds "'and had been put into bed "'when someone came along and jerked me out again, saying, "'Nellie Brown has to be put in a room alone tonight, "'for I suppose she's noisy. "'I was taken to room twenty-eight "'and left to try and make an impression on the bed. "'It was an impossible task.' The bed had been made high in the center and sloping on either side. At the first touch, my head flooded the pillow with water, and my wet slip transferred some of its dampness to the sheet. When Miss Group came in, I asked if I could have a nightgown. "'We have no such things in this institution,' she said. "'I do not like to sleep without,' I replied. "'Well, I don't care about that,' she said. "'You are in a public institution now, and you can't expect to get anything.' "'This is charity, and you should be thankful for what you get.' "'But the city pays to keep these places up,' I urged, "'and pays people to be kind to the unfortunates brought here.' "'Well, you don't need to expect any kindness here, and you won't get it,' she said. "'And she went out and closed the door. "'I think you get the drift. "'Other chapters are titled Choking and Beating Patients "'and Some Unfortunate Stories.' Then there's Insane Hall number 7. And then she begins, I had, toward the last, been shut off from all visitors. And so when the lawyer, Peter A. Hendricks, came and told me that friends of mine were willing to take charge of me if I would rather be with them than in the asylum, I was only too glad to give my consent. I asked him to send me something to eat immediately on his arrival in the city, and then I waited anxiously for my release. It came sooner than I had hoped. I was out, in line, taking a walk, and had just gotten interested in a poor woman who had fainted away while the nurses were trying to compel her to walk. "'Goodbye. I'm going home,' I called to Pauline Moser, as she went past with a woman on either side of her. Sadly, I said farewell to all I knew as I passed them on my way to freedom and life, while they were left behind to a fate worse than death. "'Adios,' I murmured to the Mexican woman. I kissed my fingers to her, and so I left my companions of Hall Seven. I had looked forward so eagerly to leaving the horrible place, yet when my release came and I knew that God's sunlight was to be free for me, again, there was a certain pain in leaving. For ten days I had been one of them. Foolishly enough, it seemed intensely selfish to leave them to their sufferings. I felt a quixotic desire to help them by sympathy and presence, but only for a moment. The bars were down, and freedom was sweeter to me than ever. Soon I was crossing the river and nearing New York, once again I was a free girl after ten days in the madhouse on Blackwell's Island. Soon after I had bidden farewell to the Blackwell's Island Insane Asylum, I was summoned to appear before the grand jury. I answered the summons with pleasure, because I longed to help those I had seen. And then our story continues. Committed to the asylum, Bly experienced the deplorable conditions firsthand. After ten days, the asylum released Bly at the world's behest. Her report published October 9, 1887, and later in book form, as Ten Days in a Madhouse, caused a sensation, prompted the asylum to implement reforms, and brought her lasting fame. She had a significant impact on American culture and shed light on the experiences of marginalized women beyond the bounds of the asylum as she ushered in the era of stunt girl journalism. In 1893, 
Bly used the celebrity status she had gained from her asylum reporting skills to schedule an exclusive interview with the allegedly insane serial killer Lizzie Halliday. Lizzie Halliday, by the way, was an Irish-American serial killer responsible for the deaths of four people in upstate New York during the 1890s. In 1894, she became the first woman to be sentenced to death by the electric chair. Halliday's sentence was commuted, however, and she spent the rest of her life in a mental institution. Biographer Brooke Kroger argues, Her two-part series in October of 1887 was a sensation, effectively launching the decade of stunt, or detective reporting, a clear precursor to investigative journalism, and one of Joseph Pulitzer's innovations that helped give new journalism of the 1880s and 90s its moniker. The employment of stunt girls has often been dismissed as a circulation-boosting gimmick of the sensationalist press. However, the genre also provided women with their first collective opportunity to demonstrate that, as a class, they had the skills necessary for the highest level of general reporting. The stunt girls, with Bly as their prototype, were the first women to enter the journalistic mainstream in the 20th century. The term stunt girls was an insult in itself. These girls were courageous investigative reporters, the kind of truth-teller reporters that are out there today, but in smaller numbers. In 1888, Bly suggested to her editor at the New York World that she take a trip around the world, attempting to turn the fictional around the world in 80 days, into a fact for the first time. It was a huge undertaking. A year later, at 9.40 a.m. on November 14, 1889, and with two days' notice, she boarded the Augusta Victoria, a steamer of the Hamburg-American line, and began her around-the-world journey. To sustain interest in the story, the world organized a Nellie Bly guessing match, in which readers were asked to estimate Bly's arrival time to the second, with the grand prize consisting at first of a trip to Europe, and later on, spending money for the trip. During her travels around the world, Bly went through England, France, where she met Jules Verne at Amiens, Brindisi, the Suez Canal, Colombo in Ceylon, the Straits settlements of Penang, and Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan. Just over 72 days after her departure from Hoboken, Bly was back in New York. She had circumnavigated the globe, traveling alone for almost the entire journey. Bly's journey was a world record, although it only stood for a few months until George Francis Train completed the journey in 67 days. I tried to find if any other women have circumnavigated the globe in a balloon, but I can't find any listing. Maybe you can find it. After the fanfare of her trip around the world, Bly quit reporting and took a lucrative job writing serial novels for publisher Norman Monroe's weekly New York Family Story paper. The first chapters of Ava the Adventuress, based on the real-life trial of Ava Hamilton, appeared in print before Bly returned to New York. Between 1889 and 1895, she wrote 11 novels. As few copies of the paper survived, these novels were thought lost until 2021, just recently, when author David Blixt announced their discovery founded Monroe's British weekly, The London Story Paper. In 1893, though still writing novels, she returned to reporting for the world. Naturally, this sparked my curiosity, and I started looking for her stories. In 1895, Bly married millionaire manufacturer Robert Seaman. Bly was 31, and Seaman was 73 when they married. Due to her husband's failing health, she left journalism and succeeded her husband as head of the Ironclad Manufacturing Company, which made steel containers such as milk cans and boilers. 
Seaman died in 1904. That same year, Ironclad began manufacturing the steel barrel that was the model for the 55-gallon oil drum still in widespread use in the United States today. There have been claims that Bly invented the barrel, but the inventor was registered as Henry Warren. Bly was, however, an inventor in her own right, receiving U.S. patent 697553 for a novel milk can and patent 703711 for a stacking garbage can, both under her married name of Elizabeth Cochrane Seaman. For a time, she was one of the leading women industrialists in the United States. And here her biographer, Kroger, adds, She ran her company as a model of social welfare, replete with health benefits and recreational facilities. But Bly was hopeless at understanding the financial aspects of her business and ultimately lost everything. Unscrupulous employees built the firm of hundreds of thousands of dollars, troubles compounded by protracted and costly bankruptcy litigation. So she was back in reporting, and she covered the women's suffrage possession of 1913 for the New York Evening Journal. Her article's headline was, Suffragists are men superiors, and in its text she accurately predicted that it would be 1920 before women in the United States would be given the right to vote. She got it right. She also wrote stories on Europe's Eastern Front during World War I. Bly was the first woman and one of the first foreigners to visit the war zone between Serbia and Austria. She was arrested when she was mistaken for a British spy. On January 27, 1922, she died of pneumonia at St. Mark's Hospital, New York City, at the age of 57. She was interred at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. In 1998, Bly was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She was one of four journalists honored with a U.S. postage stamp in a Woman in Journalism set in 2002. In 2019, the Roosevelt Island Operating Corporation put out an open call for artists to create a Nellie Bly Memorial art installation on Roosevelt Island. The winning proposal, The Girl Puzzle, by Amanda Matthews, was announced on October 16, 2019. The Girl Puzzle opened to the public in December of 2021, just a little over a year ago, as I write this. She was also the subject of a 1946 Broadway musical called Nellie Bly, written by Johnny Burke and Jimmy Van Heusen. The show ran for 16 performances. She's been portrayed in the films The Adventures of Nellie Bly in 1981, Ten Days in a Madhouse in 2015, and Escaping the Madhouse, The Nellie Bly Story, 2019. And here's one you might have missed. A fictionalized version of Bly as a mouse named Nellie Bly appears as a central character in the animated children's film An American Tale, The Mystery of the Night Monster. Nellie Bly was also a subject of Season 2, Episode 5 of The West Wing, in which First Lady Abby Bartlett dedicates a memorial in Pennsylvania in honor of Nellie Bly and commissions the president to mention her and other female historic figures during his weekly radio address. She's been the subject of two episodes of the Comedy Central series Drunk History. The second season episode, New York City, featured her undercover exploits in the Blackwell's Island Asylum, while the third season episode, Journalism, retold the story of her race around the world against Elizabeth Bisland. A fireboat named Nellie Bly operated in Toronto, Canada in the first decade of the 20th century. From early in the 20th century until 1961, the Pennsylvania Railroad operated an express train named the Nellie Bly on a route between New York and Atlantic City, bypassing Philadelphia. Her name was actually honored in so many ways I can't list them here. But I can safely say that she was a huge hero in her time and beyond. 
"'In history we often find that people like her, "'the ones who come out first, "'serve as catalysts for change, "'and she was definitely one of those. "'A true hero to admire this month of March, "'which has been named Women's History Month. "'And she's truly a 1001 Stories podcast hero. "'This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, "'and this is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. "'We always appreciate reviews, "'so if you enjoy our shows,' please do stop a moment and send us a kind review. We also appreciate our supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Take a moment to visit us there, and maybe begin making some small monthly donations. $3 a month, or $4 a month, or $5 a month. The 1001 Stories Network now does 600,000 unique listens every month. All you have to do is go to your show notes in this podcast to get links, to get the names of and links to all of our podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay safe out there, everyone, and we'll be back soon.